investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors, traders, podcast listeners to episode 45 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is Friday, December 13th. Whoa, Friday the 13th. Are you superstitious? Uh, Maybe uh, not superstitious, just a little stitious. Nonetheless, uh, some key market moving events that we wanted to touch on this week, starting with rock bottom interest rates remaining as the Fed and the ECB kept rates steady in their respect, uh, respective announcements this week, are they ever going to hike interest rates? Legendary central banker, unfortunately, passes away. Paul Volcker, we're going to chat about what he did in the late 70s and early 80s that was so notable. Also, Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos, he's set to patch the, pass the torch as he's going to step down as governor next year. Who's up next at the Bank of Canada? So Saudi Aramco, they officially hit their much desired $2 trillion valuation after their recent IPO this week. Was their stock price manipulated? Boris Johnson, some more Brexit news. He won the UK election and declared Brexit a near certainty, but will it actually happen this time? Lastly, we're going to discuss why merger arbitrage deserves a spot in investor portfolios. Some central banking news this week with the Federal Reserve choosing to hold interest rates steady at its meeting. This was really in line with market expectations. Their rate setting committee voted 10 to 0 to leave the central bank's benchmark rate in a range between 1.5% and 1.75%. Now, this is the first unanimous vote at the Federal Reserve since May. Typically, there's uh, disagreements. Recently, with the, the recent rate cutting, there has been some Fed members that wanted to leave rates higher and not cut, but since they're staying steady now, Uh, It's a unanimous 10 to 0 decision. Fed officials, they also indicated their desire to keep rates on hold throughout 2020, opting to see inflation rise to a material amount before hiking rates. Now, after lowering rates at their previous meetings earlier this year to guard the U.S. economy from the effects of trade tensions and potential global slowdown, Fed officials indicated comfort with leaving monetary policy on hold throughout this year, next year, 2020, while keeping an eye on inflation, economic growth, etc. But most see the Fed raising rates once or, once or twice after 2020. So I think that they're going to be on hold for a while. Looks like they're going to keep uh, rates between 1.5 to 1.75% for the next while. So if you have any sort of you know floating rate debt uh, that's linked to U.S. interest rates, then you can be relieved that you're not seeing that go up anytime soon. Got a couple quotes from Fed Chair Jay Powell. He indicated that inflation is barely moving, notwithstanding that employment is at 50-year lows and expected to remain there. 
and so the need for rate increases is less. He also stated, I would want to see a significant move up inflation that's also persistent before raising rates to address inflation. What do you think of the recent uh, policy decision at the Fed? Yeah, so the, you know they do mention that they'd want to see a significant increase in inflation, uh, that only that would warrant an increase in interest rates. But I mean, they d the last CPI um, output that uh, that they had this past week was uh, I believe it was 2.1 percent annualized and so you know it, it is above their target range slightly now their use when they were you know decreasing rates uh, inflation was at like the 1.6 1.7 percent range now it's slightly above I don't really foresee them having the same amount of haste to increase rates on that on that side it's not really a there's not an asymmetry um is what i'm getting at i guess um so as you know any of the fed watchers they don't believe that there's going to be any any raises in the next uh in the next couple of years but i guess that will remain to be seen the this this fed does t seem to be quite dovish in that regard yeah certainly there is an easing bias and they've even discussed potentially letting the economy run hot, i.e. having inflation average above 2% for a material amount of time, still working off the effects of the global financial crisis 10 years ago, they are pretty skittish in hiking and tightening monetary policy uh, too quickly or uh, to a level that the economy can't withstand, which clearly happened uh, in late 2018. They, they were hiking rates, um, you know, reducing the or, or running off the balance sheet and tightening monetary policy. And you saw some negative data, some negative economic data, not to mention the um, S&P 500 drawing down 20% into a bear market. So certainly they are cognizant of uh, having that easing bias and not tightening too much as they did last year. So certainly here they're going to leave rates on hold for now. And speaking of leaving rates on hold, we got some news out of the ECB. So Christine Lagarde, she kept the European Central Bank's policy interest rate unchanged. Now, this was her first meeting as the bank's president taking over from the now retired Mario Draghi. She cited muted inflation pressures and weak economic growth in Europe for her decision to hold rates steady. However, this was really a consensus call. No one's expecting rates to go up in Europe anytime soon. After years of negative rates and more than 2.6 trillion euro of ECB bond purchasing, Eurozone economic growth still remains sluggish after you know what seems like at least 10 years of these uh, economic stimulation measures and inflation here, the same old story that you're seeing in the US as well with inflation well below their objective target. Now, many doubt whether the ECB can loosen monetary policy further or if it's running out of ammunition after cutting rates to a record low of this negative 0.5%. And in addition to that, they relaunched their bond purchasing earlier this year. So they're doing a significant amount of uh, easing and extremely extremely easy monetary policy much more so than the federal reserve like the fed has rates 1.5 to 1.75 percent which is low however it is po it is positive now you have the ecb at negative 0.5 percent which to me 
these negative rates just seem to be pushing on a string with little to no effect. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you had mentioned, kind of pushing on a string. I do find it interesting that, yeah, they're really not going to have much for ammunition in a downturn as well. One, one piece in the announcement from the ECB was that they forecast inflation to be 1.6% by 2022. And, you know, my initial thoughts on that are just that an inflation target two years out seems just a bit ridiculous and seems like kind of a, uh, a pointless exercise. But as well, one other aspect, uh, just specific to Lagarde, is so she is coming into the ECB and being well known for a very good communicator. And that is a central job characteristic, as we will talk about Pelos uh, later in, the, in, in this podcast, but that is a central job of this position to communicate with markets right. regarding the policy. But one other thing that she is, um, you know, setting out upon is a strate strategic review of the ECB policy in general. So the last time, typically uh, central banks, they do their policy reviews semi-regularly, like the Fed and BOC currently are undergoing a review of their mandate, um, but the ECB hasn't done so since 2003. And so their current mandate is simply price stability and sustainable growth, which is the typical mandate of a central bank. That's what they say, but as we know, we think there's a third mandate, which is uh, S&P 500 targeting. They like <laughs> to see the stock market go up and they like to uh, you know, juice those returns. And Certainly, Certainly. Uh, the uh, leaders of the country enjoy that as well. Absolutely. And the interesting aspect of this, this strategic review is that she's now looking to potentially add climate change, cryptocurrencies, and overall economic inequality to as not pillar mandates, but kind of a, a sub-mandate of the ECB, which seems very odd to include these and kind of muddles the proposition of a central bank and whether they are the best avenue to combat some of these issues. Nobody's debating that the important uh, nature of, say, climate change, but is the ECB the one that should be uh, challenging this? And the other interesting aspect that I just took away from uh, her initial uh, press conference was I believe that she she described herself that she doesn't see herself as dovish or hawkish, uh, but is a self-proclaimed owl, which uh, she associates with a little bit of wisdom, <laughs> which is just a very interesting interpretation. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting comment from her on that one. Now, I just wanted to look at central bank actions from, say, a 20,000-foot view. You look what's happening. So ultra-loose monetary policy, negative rates in Europe. You're having rock-bottom rates nearly in all developed economies. Meanwhile, inflation's low. However, you're having quantitative easing, uh, bond purchases, and stock markets are at record levels and the economy is doing fantastic specifically in the u.s you figure this is the time to perhaps ease off the accelerator pedal but it seems like central bankers are pretty keen on keeping the party going and not slowing down whatsoever and it kind of reminds me of the environment of the late 90s where you had alan greenspan who kept mon monetary policy too easy for too long and we saw kind of what happened after that you had the big uh, tech bubble where money was too easy flowing into uh, technology stocks 
and the outcome of that was not pretty. And then after that, the housing bubble, where interest rates were kept too low, spurring uh, too much housing demand, and you saw what happened to that. So there are negative aspects uh, that can occur from keeping monetary policy too easy for too long. And certainly my concern here, if you look in the market action, how much stock markets have rallied, how much even bond markets have rallied, pretty much all asset classes. Meanwhile, 10 years after the global financial crisis, central banks are still as stimulative as ever. Interest rates are rock bottom and uh, it's pretty much QE to infinity and it doesn't seem to be stopping. It makes you curious and a little concerned on what is yet to come. In contrast to having a policy that is too loose, the exact opposite situation happened with uh, former Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, who unfortunately recently passed away this week at the age of 1982. Now, he led the Federal Reserve between 1979 and 1987, and he's actually very well regarded. He's remembered for breaking the back of U.S. inflation in the early 1980s by hiking interest rates to unprecedented levels. He began as uh, the chairman of the Fed when inflation was nearly 12%, which in this current environment, that's kind of unfathomable, but that's really where things were back then. He became known as his uh, Saturday night special on October 6, 1979, which was, can you believe it, a Fed action on a Saturday. But nonetheless, he presented a series of measures intended to squeeze inflation. It was really his mandate to beat back inflation and get it down to a reasonable level. Now, initially he started with a 1% interest rate increase. So that's a 100 basis point hike right off the top, which you think about what they do now. It's very, very measured in terms of hiking rates by 25 basis points each time. He just went out on a Saturday night with a 1% hike and then also this raised uh, the policy rate to 12% which you know is nearly tenfold the current rate that is uh, out there currently but this wasn't even the most dramatic thing he did that was actually the Fed's shift to focusing on limiting money supply growth which meant uh, interest rates climbed as high as 20% which is just unfathom unfathomable at this point I remember being as a kid uh, my parents, you know, a kid in the early 80s, born that time, my parents opened me an interest rate account and I can still remember the numbers of uh, two accounts, one 10%, one 15% on these CDs for uh, 10 years. It's pretty exceptional to get that in a bank credit union savings account. Meanwhile, you try that these days, you're lucky to get one to 2%. And so that's really something to think about just back then. Especially if you're a fund manager, you could just go and buy bonds and, and go to the beach because your, your job is effectively done. You're guaranteed uh, double-digit interest rates. But back then, no one really wanted to buy bonds because they expected rates to just keep going higher and higher and higher. It's like these days, the exact opposite, where no one wants to sell bonds because people are expecting rates to go lower and lower and lower, perhaps even negative. However, you know, these things change, right? 
Now, during his tenure, the US economy actually went into recession twice. The jobless rate climbed to 10.8% in 1982, bad loans and bankruptcies soared, so it was kind of a disaster, a super painful period for people to go through. Home builders and farmers protested, congressional leaders, including various senators. They actually introduced legislation aimed at requiring the Fed to lower interest rates. Now, these bills were not adopted, but it goes to show you that Take, for example, these days, President Trump's pressure on the Fed and Jay Powell is nothing new. It's kind of been happening uh, since the dawn of the Federal Reserve. You had this political pressure from politicians to tilt rates in kind of whatever way they thought would benefit them. Interesting fact is that Volcker was even assigned a bodyguard after a man entered the Fed building in Washington with a sawed-off shotgun, a revolver, and a knife. So he actually faced physical threats on his life for hiking interest rates. So he's really well regarded now after the fact because he got uh, interest rates, I mean inflation, using interest rates, got inflation down to reasonable level and really set off a 40-year bond bull market. Yeah, and you know the uh, the bodyguard aspect is very very uh, surprising just because he was six foot seven, so he's a a very imposing figure both physically, but also from his intellectual capacity and from a policy standpoint, he was very firm. And you know you had mentioned about the pressure put on. Um, you know, central bankers from politicians, it being nothing new. Now, he, during his time, he had a lot of pressure on him from the Reagan administration. And he really fought back, which is, you know, looking at the Fed currently, you know, we're, it would be really nice to see a very strong figure like that in the current role. Um, but, you know, he was America's like first celebrity uh, central banker that everybody knew who Paul Volcker was. Um, but as well, even before that, he was actually known for ending, as when he was the uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, known for ending the convertibility of, US, uh, of USD to gold, mm -hmm. uh, the gold standard. Um, and which also effectively ended fixed exchange rates. Um, so even before that, but as well, he was also known as one of the few central bankers that was actually a practitioner as before even the treasury secretary role, he starting out his career, he was writing loans himself. So he had a vast amount of experience where he wasn't just practicing economics from an ivory tower. He actually had experience in the credit markets. And when you had mentioned with all this rampant inflation in the late seventies and, and, and into the eighties, what he identified was just that there was a large excess of credit in the market and he made moves to uh, to fix that issue which is he's just a very interesting figure and it's unfortunate with his passing that um, you know it just reminds us of all the great things that he had done in the past that weren't necessarily popular at the time. Right. And he was so well regarded after that, the Obama administration actually brought him back to be involved in establishing what's now known as the Volcker Rule, limiting uh, proprietary trading at uh, U.S. banks. So his name really lives on through his policies and um, these new rules governing banks. So certainly uh, a very memorable figure. But in addition to that, we have uh, Central Bank Action up north with Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Palos. He announced that he will step down when his term ends next 
summer. He's been governor of the central bank since 2013, so he served quite the long term. Now, there's people speculating on who's going to replace him. I think the most likely candidate is his right-hand woman, Carolyn Wilkins. Now, she's really been the number two at the Bank of Canada since 2014, really seems to be groomed for the job. She's currently the senior deputy governor at the central bank, so she seems to be the most likely candidate, in my opinion. But I guess we'll see at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be an interesting move just because when Polos was hired, he was kind of a... He, although he was viewed as in the running, he definitely wasn't viewed as the uh, the most popular candidate as he did come from the export side. Um, I believe it was with Export Development Canada. Right. Um, but he he was very he has had a very interesting run as uh, as Bank of Canada governor. Um, I mean, when he did begin, he was criticized for his communication style, as we we're discussing with Lagarde. Um, they brought in somebody that was was known as a very good communicator at the ECB. Right, and why communication is so important is because the market doesn't like getting caught off guard. And I remember he did have some uh, dovish comments that the market didn't like because there were pretty dramatic moves in the currency, the loonie just tanking uh, early on when he came out with some unexpectedly dovish comments. So certainly it is important to try to communicate any future uh, policy moves. And that's really how investors have been trained on these things. Absolutely. And and one other thing that was, I guess, unique for a central banker with Polos was that he was known for being quite close with Canadian CEOs. And I don't mean that in a negative kind of chummy way, um, more so just being able, having regular meetings with uh, industry CEOs where he was able to check the pulse of Canadian business rather than just simply working through economic models. So he did have a bit of a boots on the ground uh, approach to being a central banker uh, as well. And one last thing is that he's always been very critical of consumer debt, something that most central bankers don't really worry themselves with, uh, but something that is hopefully carried on with his successor as those are becoming quite high in Canada and something that the BOC would be it would make sense for them to pay attention to moving moving forward. Yeah, certainly, and they paid a lot of attention to the housing market as well. In addition to the consumer debt piece, they're concerned about mortgage debt. Really just an over-levered Canadian consumer, if you take into account auto loans, credit card debt, in addition to mortgage debt, they're really reliant on these rock-bottom interest rates, and if rates were to go up, I think the central bank gets quite nervous in terms of what will that do to the economy. But nonetheless, Apollos, my opinion, has done a, a pretty great job over his term, so we will uh, stay tuned to see who's next. Wanted to wrap up our coverage of Aramco. Now, Saudi Arabian Oil Co., also known as Aramco, their shares were listed. They officially IPO'd this week on the Riyadh Stock Exchange at a 1.7 trillion valuation. As we previously discussed, how important was it for the Saudi leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to get this $2 trillion valuation? Well, it was extremely important. And after two days of trading, guess what happened? It reached $2 trillion. First day, it closed limit up on the uh, Saudi Stock Exchange. Actually, limit market moves to plus or minus 10%. So on the first day, went up 10%. Not very many shares traded and also rallied on the second day to achieve the true $2 trillion valuation, which in my opinion was largely 
a political move. This whole IPO is really the centerpiece of the Crown Prince's vision for diversifying the kingdom away from its oil dependence. Now this IPO raised $25.6 billion, so you're going to use that to try to develop other industries. However, this was well below their plan from three years ago to raise as much as $100 billion in a blockbuster international IPO. Now this IPO ended up being only domestic. They scaled it back pretty dramatically after overseas investors balked at the proposed valuation and only 1.5% of Aramco ended up being offered to the market. But with such a small float, and we've discussed in the past on the podcast on these low float IPOs and how they're prone to market manipulation because you don't have a lot of sellers, you don't have a lot of shares trading and there could be a supply demand imbalance pushing the price around. And in my opinion, uh, this IPO had pretty much the smallest float ever, 1.5%. And the holders are all pretty much domestic investors who were urged pretty vehemently from the government not to sell their shares. So what happens when you limit the supply of shares? and they're pushing investors to buy into the IPO after it's trading, well, the price is bound to go up, right? Absolutely. And in, in terms of the, when you talk about the supply-demand imbalance, was it was very much a strategic decision to do this. And so when they were gathering bids for the demand for the investment bankers doing this in the IPO process, the average institutional investor received only 16% of their bid in the IPO allocation. So if they wanted the rest of that allocation that they had demand for, they would have to go out into the market in the first couple of days of trading. So about 80, 84% of what they had initially said they wanted would have to be bought on the open market. So that's just a typical strategy. It's like over an oversubscribed offering. It's just a typical strategy used by an investment bank to ensure that the share price go- increases after the IPO. And get that IPO pop. Absolutely. However, Aramco really isn't the one capturing that value since theoretically they could have been able to price it at a higher rate and, and just be one time subscribed, let's say, rather than being so like almost six times oversubscribed. Yeah, nonetheless, many remain skeptical, as do we, of the robustness of this company's $2 trillion valuation. Number one, very few shares traded that. I always make the joke that I could invent a cryptocurrency called JCoin, make a billion of them and sell one to you for uh, $1, and then, hey, I'm a billionaire. But, you know, it's not really believable. In addition to not very many shares being traded, this was really a point of pride uh, in Saudi Arabia. For example, it was front page news in mainstream media there with headlines such as Aramco at the top of the world and a dream come true, which, you know, really goes to show you how important getting to that arbitrary $2 trillion number was. And to their credit, they made it happen. However, international investors, they put Aramco's value on average around $1.36 trillion. So um, based on that estimate, it's roughly 50% overvalued. You had some hedge funds subscribing to the IPO, now flip it after each $2 trillion because in their opinion, it was kind of guaranteed to go there. But after it gets to that goal of theirs, 
how can it go up anymore, right? So that's the goal is two trillion, so they are sellers there. And if you're holding the stock, then perhaps it's a good time to consider that strategy. Across the pond, we had some Brexit news with Boris Johnson, also known as Bojo. His conservative party won a decisive election victory clinching a healthy majority to govern in the UK. Now Johnson declared, quote, a new dawn in Britain while claiming with certainty an exit from the EU in January, stating no ifs, no buts, no maybes. So there you have it. Johnson winning the election, declaring Brexit in January as a near certain or perhaps a certain event. Now what happened to summarize the Conservatives, his party, they won 365 seats. Now this gave them a majority of 80 seats in the House of Commons, their best showing since 1987. And this is really giving them the mandate to move forward with Brexit, effectively, uh, you know, the clearest thing that they needed to exit from the European Union. He promised, Johnson promised, to bring forward this Brexit legislation before Christmas with a view of Britain leaving the EU on January 31st. So that's the next key date. We've had a number of Brexit deadlines that have lapsed. Nothing has happened. Uh, but this one, in my opinion, looks uh, fairly high probability that it's actually going to happen. However, in my opinion, that just the work starts then, right? The real slog of negotiating a trade deal with the other countries in the Eurozone bloc, it will truly begin at that point. But nonetheless, wanted to talk about some market action. What happened here was you had a big rally in the currency, the pound jumped to its highest level against US dollars in about a year and a half. Shares in the, in the London Stock Exchange rallied hard. The FTSE 250 index of UK shares jumped 5%. So what happened was all that uncertainty really came off the table. And as you know, the market really dislikes uncertainty. So with that being pretty much definitive in what's gonna happen, Brexit's gonna happen at this date, no hard Brexit, hard Brexit is off the table, which would have been absolutely disastrous. Uh, you had a, a jump in asset prices, right? Because that provides certainty to investors. Yeah, absolutely. And so with this, I mean, you had mentioned some of the market action, but just as a background as well, this is the biggest Tory majority uh, since Margaret Thatcher's in 1987. Um, and as well as you'd mentioned that the negotiation of a trade deal now begins. And already Trump has been involved. He did have a tweet um, out to Boris Johnson congratulating him and also mentioning that the U.S. is now very open to negotiating a trade deal um, with uh, Britain. So that will be interesting to follow. But the key piece for Britain is to negotiate that trade deal with the rest of the Eurozone. Put out a blog post this week titled, Why Merger Arbitrage Deserves a Spot in Investor Portfolios. Now, I was reading some interesting data that was released this week in JP Morgan's Guide to Alternatives that actually showed the previous uh, returns every year since 2009 of various hedge fund strategies and various asset classes, including global stocks and bonds. And as everyone knows, since 2009, Equities have done tremendously well with a huge rally and global equities did have the highest return. However, it's important to note that although they did have the highest return, they did not have the best performance. Now, this may confuse some people, but when I speak of performance, I talk about risk adjusted return. If you look at global equities, 
to get that 10% annualized return that they had since 2009, you had to put up with some pretty significant volatility of 15.6% annualized standard deviation. And that actually brought three bear markets, meaning declines of 20% or greater. You had that in 2011, 2015 and 2018. So it's important to look at return per unit of risk or volatility. And if we look at that versus various hedge fund strategies, nearly every hedge fund actually beat global equities since 2009, despite what the media tells you. If we look down the list, return per unit of risk, the top ranking strategy is merger arbitrage. Now it only had an annualized return of 4.1%, which is obviously lower than global equities at 10% annualized. However, this came with a standard deviation of only 2.5%, which gives you a return per unit of risk of 1.64, which is uh, nearly triple the risk adjusted return of global equities, which was only 0.64. Other hedge fund, strategies that beat global equities on a risk-adjusted basis. You had relative value, market-neutral distressed debt, even the hedge fund index beat it, and long-short equities. The only hedge fund strategy that failed to beat global equities or global bonds on a risk-adjusted basis was global macro, which has had quite the poor showing over the past decade, which is why you've seen a lot of those fund managers close up shop, the most recent one being more capital. Uh, I also wrote about merger arbitrage as an asset class, and this has been a strategy that's been around forever. If you read about old trades that uh, Ben Graham used to do in his uh, Graham uh, Newman partnership back in the day that Warren Buffett first worked for. They were doing arbitrage trades. Warren Buffett has been a practitioner for over 50 years. I was reading an old article from 1988 when he was running Berkshire Hathaway back when he was smaller and could afford to do a lot of these merger arbitrage trades. He actually earned a 53% rate of return in 1998 from his merger arbitrage investments. However, returns have been compressed pretty significantly since then assets have really come into the space. If you look five years ago, there's about 24 billion invested into merger arbitrage funds. Now, five years later, there's 71 billion, so growth of nearly 3x. It's becoming a lot more popular, institutionalized and standardized, becoming a part of many institutional portfolios, certainly, but you're starting to see that trickle down to the advisor and even the retail portfolio. The other comment that I made in this blog post was the aspect of active versus passive. Typically that's spoken about from a long only equity basis. And that's a really important argument because the vast majority of fund managers, I'm talking about 90% have failed to beat the passive S&P 500 or any other benchmark index uh, over the long term. Uh, and the near term as well. And that's why you've seen such a flood of capital into S&P 500 index funds, whereas passive holdings of equities have now exceeded active for the first time ever, which is a huge sea change. You're seeing massive pressure in the mutual fund space. These long only managers just really getting crushed. And so it's really well regarded fact that passive beats active over the long term. However, there is a passive benchmark in merger arbitrage. And if you compare that to active, 
Active managers really crushed it. I mean, it's not even really close. The S&P merger arbitrage index uh, got beaten by the HFRI merger arbitrage index, which is just a collection of merger arbitrage funds. They got beat over three, five, 10 years, and even since inception, since 2006, by nearly 100 basis points. And so uh, the main point here is that merger arbitrage, it pays to be active. You can't really earn the best returns as you can on the long only uh, equity side of beating the benchmark or lack of beating the benchmark. In merger arbitrage, it typically is where it's worth it to pay up for active management because typically you see higher returns from that perspective. And lastly, I just wanted to touch on kind of the risk reward profile of merger arbitrage. You get that sort of uh, four to five percent annualized return with a really low volatility and it produces this yield that investors really crave. So it can be compared as a good alternative to fixed income to bond type strategies, especially if you're concerned about interest rates going up because merger arbitrage does not have that exposure to uh, long-term rates, like you don't have that duration risk. The other main advantage is uh, the vast majority of the yield for merger ARB is through capital gains, which typically can be taxed more efficiently than the interest income generated from bonds. And that's about it for episode 45 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, as always, you can listen to more episodes at absolutereturnpodcast.com. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a review and tell your friends, coworkers, colleagues, etc. As for us, we're taking a bit of a podcast hiatus for the holidays, so we'll likely be away for the next couple weeks working harder than ever. So if you want to hear from us, catch us on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, any of the social media, send us an email. So we will be at the office, but no podcast until early January. So until then, we'll chat with you soon. Happy investing. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.